Europeans are effectively now between a Iranian rock and a Trumpian hard place. Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. On Tuesday, President Trump stepped up to a microphone in the White House and announced that, quote, the Iran deal is defective at its core and under his administration, the United States would no longer abide by it. Technically, the deal is not canceled, but the United States will be violating one of its core terms by reimposing economic sanctions on Iran, as well as secondary sanctions on companies doing business with Iran. The reaction around the world has fallen along predictable lines. Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu has welcomed the announcement, while leaders in Europe are fuming. France's ambassador to the United Nations, François Delattre, coined a new term, dubbing this American foreign policy approach as unisolationism, a mashup of unilateralism and isolationism. The question facing world leaders now is, what comes next? Joining us from our nation's capital is Mark Dubowitz, CEO of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies and director of that think tank's Center on Sanctions and Illicit Finance. Mark is one of the foremost experts on Iran's global terrorist activities and its nuclear weapons program. He has advised the Bush, Obama, and Trump administrations on Iran. I can think of no better guest to help us understand what comes next. Mark, thank you for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. So the opinions on what President Trump should have done this past week tended to break down into people who wanted him to fix the deal by working with our European allies to extend the length of the deal to address Iran's ballistic missile program, to crack down on Iranian support for terror, um, and, and those who wanted to nix it. Uh, to withdraw from the deal. There were the fixers and the nixers. Where did you fall out on that spectrum? Well, first of all, I think there were the keepers as well as the fixers and nixers. I think there were people who wanted to keep the deal, not change the deal, believe the deal is, is, is a great deal and that it cuts off permanently Iran's pathways to nuclear weapons. Um, Good a number point. of those people worked in the Obama administration. So those were the keepers. Then there were, there were the fixers and then there were the nixers. So I am a fixer. I've been a long-time fixer since uh, 2013 when the interim agreement came out, and I believe that there were some fundamental flaws in the interim agreement. Those flaws remained in the final agreement. They actually worsened as a result of additional concessions that the United States gave up at, uh, at that time. And so I believe we had a fatally flawed nuclear agreement, but I, I strongly believe the agreement could be fixed diplomatically in a first phase by reaching a U.S. European supplemental agreement that addressed the sunset provisions, that addressed the lack of access to Iranian military sites, and also addressed the fact that the agreement did not cover nuclear warhead carrying missiles. But ultimately, President Trump decided to go with the NICS option. Can you just run through for our audience what happened and what the broad implications are? In January, the president said to the Europeans that unless you fix the deal, unless you reach an agreement with the U.S. negotiators that addresses those three flaws, the sunsets, missiles, and lack of military inspections, I'm going to nix the deal by May the 12th. The Europeans and the United States began a negotiating process. They met four or five times. They actually had reached a supplemental agreement 
Um, most of the issues had been agreed to. There was one remaining issue on the sunset provisions, which I'm happy to describe in more detail. And I think there was some optimism that they would have a supplemental agreement. I think the Secretary of State reportedly asked the President for a couple more weeks to continue negotiations with the Europeans. Obviously, he's just been confirmed, so he hasn't been in his seat very long, and now wanted more time to actually get the supplemental agreement nailed down. The President decided that he didn't think the Europeans had gone far enough, and he ultimately wanted to walk away from this deal. So that's where we are. The, the United States has withdrawn from the deal, and now over the next 90 days to 180 days, various sanctions are going to be snapped back. These are the most powerful economic sanctions that were lifted or suspended as part of the original nuclear deal in 2015. You were an advisor, you have been an advisor to this administration as well as the past two administrations on Iran. So perhaps you have a sense of this. Do you think that President Trump would have been satisfied with announcing that he had fixed President Obama's deal? Or do you think there was something about walking away from the deal that the previous administration had come to that was almost too alluring for him to pass up? I think we have our answer. I think the president. I think the president clearly um, had no interest in fixing the JCPOA. I think that he is, seems to have decided that he wants to, what I would call, nix to a fix. He wants to nix the deal, take the Amer- take the United States out of this deal that he thinks is is so fatally flawed that it, it cannot be fixed in any material way, and begin a process of engaging the Europeans and others with ultimately getting the Iranians potentially back to the table to reach a much more comprehensive agreement that addresses the full range of Iran's malign activities, the nuclear program, missiles, terrorism, uh, regional malign activity, and some kind of basically comprehensive agreement that is predicated on what President Macron called the four pillars. And, and this is the four-pillar speech that Macron gave a few, few weeks ago when he was in Washington. The nuclear program before 2025, the nuclear program after 2025, missiles and regional issues. And that seems to be the strategy going forward of the administration. And yet the rest of our partners in the deal, Britain, France, Germany, Russia and China, all are staying in the deal. And Iran has also indicated that it may as well remain. Is there a chance that the deal could survive without the United States, that we never had the power to nix it at all? There is a chance, but for the deal to survive, the Iranians have effectively gone to the Europeans, and they're now using their familiar tool of of nuclear blackmail. And so what they're saying is this, we will stay with the deal, um, but you have to pay us to stay in the deal. So if you don't send us billions of dollars in trade and investment and save our economy, then we're going to walk away from the deal. We're going to escalate our nuclear program. If we do, either we're going to get a bomb or the Israelis and Americans are going to bomb our program. So then there's going to be a war. So unless you want war, you better give us billions and tens of billions of dollars of trade and investment. So that's that's what the Iranians are going to do. On the other hand... The Trump administration is going to say to the Europeans, if you invest billions of dollars in the Iranian economy and trade with this regime, then we're going to sanction your companies and banks. So the Europeans are effectively now between a Iranian rock and a Trumpian hard place. And their only escape hatch from that is to do what President Macron says he would like to do, 
which is try to bring the United States and the Iranians back to the table and negotiate a comprehensive agreement that deals with the full range of malign activities that the president described in his speech. And those talks that have been going on for the past few months now between the U.S. and our European allies, those are dead officially, or is there still a chance that uh, we might, you know, fix after uh, the Knicks? You know, without bringing Iran to its knees through sanctions, you know, after a few more years of that, could we still kind of turn back the clock to a couple weeks ago and, and announce that the Western alliance has come up with something better? You know, anything's possible with this president. I, I, I really have given up trying to predict what he's going to do. Um, I, I, I think it's doubtful. I mean, at this point, I think the Europeans are, are rightly upset. You know, they spent four months negotiating. They came very, very far towards the U.S. position, and it still wasn't enough, and the president still decided to withdraw from the deal. But I think the Europeans um, are going to face what I've described, which is sort of this cold... Uh, dose of reality that within they're caught between the Iranians and the Americans, they don't want to end up in a massive transatlantic blowout with the United States. On the other hand, they're worried the Iranians will escalate their nuclear program. So they're going to have to find some way out of this dilemma. And perhaps the first step is to go back to this USE3 understanding that was very close to being reached, and then use that as a first step towards a comprehensive agreement with, uh, with the Iranians. But I think at this point, the administration, I believe, needs to stand up and, and articulate what their Iran strategy will be going forward. I think they need to then bring the Europeans and the Saudis and Emiratis and Bahrainis and Israelis together in a, in a discussion on, on what the way forward is. And then they may expand that, that discussion to include other powers um, allied powers before they start talking about bringing the Russians, the Chinese, and the Iranians to the table. I think that, that may be a diplomatic path forward. At the same time, you mentioned sanctions. Sanctions is going to be just one element of the U.S. national power that has to be applied, right? America has to now shift to a comprehensive strategy of using all instruments of national power in a maximum pressure campaign against the Iranian regime, akin to what they're doing on the North Korea front. And that includes not just sanctions and financial power, but that'll include political warfare, cyber, covert action. Um, it'll, it'll also have to include some, some military action in order to neutralize and roll back the Iranians in the region, where obviously the Iranian regime has gotten very aggressive and is, is winning in, in multiple, on ma- multiple battlegrounds, including Syria and Iraq. So as Obama used to say, all options are on the table. Yeah, and as Donald Trump would probably say, I'm actually, I actually mean it. When right, all options right. are on the table. Right. Well, so President Trump, you know, just to, to come back to negotiations for a moment, he seems to be operating under a few assumptions, right? First, that the rest of the world will opt not to do business with Iran because they would prefer to continue doing business with the United States. Second, that Iran will eventually come back to the table. Um, you know, remember, I, I'm sure you well remember that the IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, um, which is one of the most uh, hardline kind of conservative, powerful elements in Iran actually found ways to turn a profit under sanctions, so they might not be um, so moved to come back to the table. And finally, that President Trump is capable of getting a better deal out of the Iranians than the Obama administration was. How do you grade those assumptions? 
Well, I think, first of all, you know, one has to understand that when you're talking about a maximum economic pressure campaign, this is not about whether the Revolutionary Guards can find sanctions-busting techniques or whether they're going to make money or, uh, at the end of the day, there's no airtight financial and economic embargo really on any country, mm-hmm. and especially one as large as Iran. The goal is not to lock up every dollar. The goal is to continue to intensify the macroeconomic pressure on, a, on an economy that already is experiencing um, a significant problem. I mean, if you look at the real dollar exchange rate as a sort of leading indicator of Iran's economic health, the, you, the, the exchange rate was reached 75,000 to one. That's 75,000 reals for a one, U, one U.S. dollar. It's down about 30, 40% the past few months. When Hassan Rouhani was elected in 2013, the exchange rate was 37,500 to one. On the eve of the Islamic Revolution in 1979, the exchange rate was 70 to one. So they've gone from 70 to one to 75,000 to one, mm-hmm. which just shows you the extraordinary deterioration in the living standards of Iranians under this Islamic regime. And I think that is a very important indicator. Now, what does that really mean politically? Well, what it means is the past few months, since about Christmas, there have been hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Iranians on the streets every day yelling death to the dictator, death to Rouhani, uh, where is my paycheck, stop spending billions of dollars supporting Bashar Assad's slaughter in Syria, stop financing Hezbollah and Hamas, Uh, we want a better future, stop um, stop brutalizing our people. Iranian women have been taking off their hijabs and, uh, and protesting against the, the, the repression of the regime, against Iranian women, minorities, religious minorities, ethnic minorities. So the Iranian, the Iranian regime is facing a, a rebellion, and not only just a rebellion uh, like it did in 2009 when you had millions of North Tehranis, middle-class North Tehranis on the streets yelling, where is my vote? after the fraudulent election of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Now these are the political base of the regime, working class, blue-collar workers across Iran, who are now saying, where is my paycheck? And that is a huge problem for the regime. And so to the extent that the Trump administration can intensify the economic pressure on the key fundamentals of the economy, on the currency, on its foreign exchange reserves, on inflation, on the banking sector, you know, the key strategic sectors like the auto sector, the energy sector, this could present a serious problem for the regime, which could have serious political consequences. I know another area of expertise for you, Mark, is terror financing. People had hoped that the money the U.S. released to Iran when the deal went into effect would be spent domestically to address all of the issues that you raised on improving life in Iran. Instead, a lot of it seems to have gone toward funding Iranian adventurism, right? People often talk about how Iran controls four Middle Eastern capitals, Baghdad, Damascus, Beirut, and Sanaa. Do you think this move by the Trump administration would successfully force Iran to cut back on that at all? Well, it was always a delusion to believe that this regime was was going to actually spend the money on the welfare of its people. Instead, as you said, it spent it on foreign adventurism. By the way, it also spent it massively on on corruption in order to support the the regime uh, and its kleptocracy. So that money was either stolen or it was given to terrorists and to Assad so he could slaughter half a million Syrians. So this is um, this is the regime. This is the nature of the regime. And it was always clear to people who had studied this regime that you had to squeeze it. You had to put, give it a choice. If you gave it enough money that it didn't have to choose, then it would spend money on everything. If you had to make it choose, 
then they would have to choose between the survival of their economy or the survival of Bashar Assad and Hezbollah. And putting it to a budgetary squeeze is what will make it increasingly difficult for this regime at a time, as I said, that it's facing this political uprising, in many cases from its base. I mean, these are people who have generally been loyal to the regime, and now these are people who are on the streets yelling death to Khamenei, death to Rouhani, in reference to the supreme leader and the Iranian president. So that's the kind of pressure that needs to be applied. And one doesn't know how that will play out. I mean, the Iranians may buckle down and withstand that pressure. The regime may decide to escalate uh, regionally or globally in order to try and focus the attention of its people on, on external enemies, sort of a classic, classic technique that, that dictatorships use. Or it may decide that it's under so much pressure that it's willing to come back to the table as it did in 2013 under similar pressure and negotiate with, with the Americans and with uh, the international community. The circumstances that you're describing in Iran of, of people who were formerly hardliners or, or, or may still be hardliners, but who no longer favor the, the current leadership, it calls the phrase regime change to mind, right? And, and there are some people in the Trump administration who have either explicitly called for America to somehow impose regime change or have walked right up to that edge without stepping over it. Do you think there's an expiration date on the Iranian regime, either because of internal forces that will tear it down or because of U.S. action? Look, I don't think the United States can impose regime change. I don't think anybody at all, including John Bolton, imagines 500,000 mechanized U.S. troops invading Iran to, to take down the Supreme Leader and the Revolutionary Guards. I think that's just off the table. I think when people talk about changing the regime, what they're talking about is, support, is supporting the democratic aspirations of the Iranian people, again, who are on the streets calling for the end of the regime. So I think what, what the United States needs to do is use all instruments of, of support and pressure in order to support a peaceful change in this regime. And there are a lot of instruments that, that we can use. I mean, I think in some respects what the administration needs to do is follow Reagan. Right. This is Ronald Reagan, 1983, National Security Decision Directive 75 is put out by the Reagan National Security Council. And that's exactly what is. We are going to neutralize and roll back Soviet influence in Europe and around the world. So we're going to use all instruments of American power, economic, financial, cyber. We're going to support anti-Soviet opposition groups and surrogates around the world. And we're going to put pressure on this regime. And we're not going to be afraid to call out this regime, as Reagan did, as the evil empire. And, and wage also an ideological struggle against it. And it's, uh, it's, you know, it's a long war, and it's not necessarily fought militarily. Um, it's often fought in the shadows. It's fought economically. It's fought using the energy weapon. And this was very successful because six years later, after the uh, Reagan administration rolled out this strategy, the Soviet Union was gone. And so I think there's some interesting lessons, and I think the administration is very much thinking along those lines in sort of studying Reagan to how Reagan dealt with the Soviet Union in, in imagining what, what could be possible against the Islamic Republic. Mark, my last question for you is about the domestic response here at home um, to President Trump's decision. There are a lot of Democrats who opposed the deal when President Obama was announcing it back in 2015, 
But now that President Trump is walking away from it, they say that it was wrong to do that. Now, there are many different ways to understand that. President Trump has called out Chuck Schumer as a hypocrite. There are certainly more reasonable and charitable interpretations of that. One thing that we've heard from many Democrats is that they just don't think that President Trump is capable of managing this situation, whether it's because they doubt his capabilities or because they think there's just too much going on with North Korea, uh, with Russia, for us to also be juggling Iran. Do you think that he's capable of handling this situation? Well, first of all, I think, you know, I think Democrats also were sort of split between keepers and fixers. I think uh, there were a number of Democrats who opposed the deal in 2015, as you said, who really believed that the best way forward, as I've suggested as well, was to reach this U.S. E3 supplemental agreement, stay in the deal, and then use all elements of American power to neutralize and roll back Iranian aggression. Uh, so I think they are disappointed that the president decided to nix, not fix. Is he capable of doing this? We, you know, we'll see. I mean, I think that he's got a very talented Secretary of State now in Mike Pompeo, who is going to be very active on this issue. He's also very knowledgeable about this issue. He's got some great people around him. He's going to be hiring and bringing in uh, other other great people. And I think, um, you know, Secretary Pompeo is, is going to have a lot on his plate, clearly, with the upcoming summit with North Korea, this Iran issue, as you say, Russia, a whole bunch of other issues that that are going to dominate um, the attention. But I, I, I have a lot of confidence in Secretary Pompeo. I think he is um, he's a very able politician, a very able diplomat, and somebody who has a deep understanding of, of this issue. And I think he will be, you know, he will be launching a major diplomatic initiative uh, in the coming weeks. And I think we'll start to see how that shapes out. So that that will be, again, a question that remains to be seen. But I, again, I have a lot of confidence in, in Secretary Pompeo. Well, it sure is nice to have a Secretary of State again. Thank you, Mark, very much for joining us and sharing these insights with us today. Oh, I appreciate you having me. Thanks again. Every year you see these stats about how little Americans know about world geography. At the height of the Iraq war, only some minuscule percentage of Americans could locate the country on a map. In the past, if you'd asked someone to find Iran on the map and they pointed to Israel's north, you might chuckle and gently move their finger about a thousand miles east. Nowadays, though, that might not be so far off. The Syrian government, such as it is, is increasingly just an Iranian vassal state kept in place through the force of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, or the IRGC, and hosting more and more Iranian military installations all the time. And Lebanon, the other state that borders Israel to the north, just saw the Iranian-backed terrorist group Hezbollah and its coalition partners make big gains in this Sunday's elections. Joining us now is Matthew Levitt, who literally wrote the book on Hezbollah, entitled Hezbollah, The Global Footprint of Lebanon's Party of God. Matt is the director of the Counterterrorism and Intelligence Project at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. From 2005 to 2007, he served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Intelligence at the U.S. Treasury Department. He is one of the foremost experts on Hezbollah and will be joining us in Jerusalem this June for the first ever AJC Global Forum in Israel. Matt, it's great to have you with us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on the program. So Israel's northern border has become this 
muddled mess. I think before we begin to talk about what has happened in Lebanon recently, it would be really helpful to our audience if you could explain who the major players are to Israel's north. So the first thing to understand is that Israel now refers to its northern border writ large, not just to the Lebanese front and the Golan Syrian front, but to the whole uh, northern front together. And so, of course, you have uh, Lebanon to the north uh, of Israel and Lebanese Hezbollah, the political, military, and terrorist organization uh, that is dominant uh, in Lebanon and just did very well in the elections and is the uh, major party within the uh, Shia um, community, especially in southern Lebanon in the Bekaa Valley. And then if you uh, move farther to the east, uh, circling around uh, down the Golan, uh, you have Syria, and across the Syrian border is, is a big mess right now. You have uh, elements tied to the Islamic State um, at the southern tip of the Golan, uh, at the triple border between uh, Israel, Syria, uh, and Jordan. Uh, as you go a little farther up north along the Golan, you have other rebel groups, some moderate, some Islamist, including the Nusra Front, which is effectively al-Qaeda in Syria. Uh, you also have uh, regime elements, uh, the Syrian Arab Army, um, and you have Lebanese Hezbollah, which is de- deeply deployed into Syria in defense of the Assad regime, together with and operating under the command of the Iranian Quds Force, the Islam- Islamic uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps, of Iran, uh, their kind of foreign legion um, element is called the Quds Force, and they are deployed in Syria as well, including um, in the direction of Israel's border, but more so further to the east. And that's what we've seen in the past 24 hours. We've seen uh, Iranian Quds Force elements firing rockets, not through proxies, not through other Shia, Iraqi, Lebanese, Afghani or Pakistani Shia militias, but directly uh, Iranians firing rockets at Israel from Syrian territory. And Israel's concern with that, of course, is not just that rockets are being fired at its territory, in this case to the to the Golan, but also that Iran seems quite intent on building up a permanent military infrastructure in Syria uh, targeting Israel, which effectively makes it a frontline state uh, in terms of Israel's security. So we'll come to Syria um, and what Iran is doing there in a moment, because uh, as you note, there's some very important breaking news today. Uh, But first, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the election in Lebanon that took place this past Sunday. And in order to understand the importance of a parliamentary election in Lebanon, I think it's helpful to have some background on the unique power sharing arrangement that exists among the different factions of Lebanese society. Can you give us, you know, a quick background on that? That's a graduate course question (laughs) right there. But the bottom line is this. Lebanon is a deeply divided uh, sectarian society. There are Maronite Christians, there are Druze, there are Sunni Muslims, there are Shia Muslims, there are plenty of other smaller communities. And the Lebanese political system is meant to give everybody a, a share of the power. Um, And so the president and the prime minister and the speaker of parliament each come from one of the three major confessional breakdowns, Christian, Sunni, and Shia. And uh, therefore, however the election pans out, uh, those power-sharing agreements will remain. So even though 
um, Prime Minister uh, uh, Hariri uh, did uh, poorly um, in the election. Uh, he will almost certainly continue to serve uh, as prime minister, uh, limiting the overall effect that Hezbollah will benefit by having done so well. It, I should make it clear, and its allies, Shia parties, uh, and some of its Christian allies. Uh, but this also means that it will be very difficult to govern, certainly in terms of anything that has to go through the parliament, without getting Hezbollah's okay. And so Hezbollah has effectively really solidified its veto over Lebanese policymaking. So is it safe to say that Hezbollah is the big winner in, in this week's election? Without question. Hezbollah and its allies uh, are the big winners in this election. It's not a surprise, uh, which is to say that this election was uh, run slightly differently than in the past. And so everyone expected uh, each uh, sectarian um, element of society to to vote for their own. There's no surprise that Hezbollah, which is the dominant party within Shia uh, politics and society in Lebanon, vacuumed up um, all the Shia votes. It, it, it uh, is no that, that doesn't surprise. The kind of big kind of macro surprise is that because Hezbollah involved itself in the war next door in Syria several years ago. Uh, when it first did so, that did uh, cost Hezbollah some standing in society, politically, some standing in terms of the amount of money it had to spend at home as opposed to in terms of its adventures in Syria. It had to shut down some social welfare activities, some media activities in in, in Lebanon back home. And, and that undermined its position for a short while in Lebanon. And what this election demonstrates is that that's come full circle. And despite the fact that it's involved in adventures in Syria in a very big way and in smaller ways in Iraq and in Yemen, uh, those things are not preventing it from succeeding politically in Lebanon, in large part because, at least in part, it's seen as the only entity capable of defending all Lebanese from the most radical Sunni terrorist groups like the Islamic State. Matt, I noticed that you're careful when speaking about the election results to refer to Hezbollah and its allies. You mentioned that some of those allies are Christians in Lebanese society. What would move those Christian factions to align themselves with an Islamist terror group like Hezbollah? So, you know, because Lebanon is this divided sectarian society, it's not at all uncommon for different confessional groups to to cooperate with one another. Um, and because Hezbollah has been able, through Iranian largesse and its own other sources of income, legitimate and illegitimate both, Hezbollah has been in a position to provide for significant social welfare services that the government either doesn't or isn't capable of providing, and it's done so in not only Shia communities, but in Christian communities as well. Um, and in that sense, really, all politics is local. On top of that, there is the fact that uh, General Aoun, who is the head of the main Christian party affiliated uh, with uh, the Shia Amal and Hezbollah parties, um, I think has long had his eye on senior positions of Lebanon, the presidency in particular, and uh, has has hitched uh, his train to um, the uh, engine that is Hezbollah. And so part of this also is the political ambitions of certain leaders in the community. And then finally, 
I think, you know, the Christians are a minority, and minorities in the region right now are very, very scared. And one of the things Hezbollah has tried to do, especially as it was trying to rebuild its position back home in Lebanon after slipping uh, in its standing after it first, you know, got involved in the war in Syria, one of the things it tried to do is build this kind of coalition of minorities. The Shia is a minority, the Alawites, which is the sect of the Assad ruling family in Syria, as a minority, the Christians as a minority, because there was this sense of, you know, this looming Sunni militancy by the very dominant uh, Sunni population in the region. And to some Christians, that just made a lot of sense. And it's not so much about what is your ideology. Are you Muslim? Are you Islamist? Are you militant? For some, the bottom line is just who is in a position to best protect our minority community. Matt, we as Americans, I think, often have a tendency to forget that there are internal politics at play um, in other countries' elections. So that second point that you made there about Michel Aoun, you know, wanting to, uh, you know, hitch his star to an ascendant political party like Hezbollah, I think that's one that we often miss as American observers when we're looking, perhaps most especially, at uh, at countries in the Middle East. And, and you know, maybe this is too much to hope for, but thinking about these internal politics, this necessity to govern, does Hezbollah need to grow up a little now? You know, not that this has happened with, for example, Hamas in Gaza, but will more responsibility to actually play a role in governing Lebanon force Hezbollah to be a more responsible actor? Uh, I think lots of people would hope that would be the case, and I I don't really expect it to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, In a sense, yes, of course. Hezbollah is very pleased with its electoral success, it's going to want to leverage that to its benefit. Hezbollah has kind of modified its public stance on things over the years. When it first announced itself as a militant political party in 1985, it issued an open letter. Uh, And much of the things in that open letter are things it doesn't stand publicly by right now. For example, the open letter from 1985 uh, openly says it, it, it seeks to create a Shia theocracy in Lebanon. But over the years, it's come to terms with the fact that Lebanon is a deeply divided sectarian country, and uh, it's going to be really hard to get people to support you if they're Sunni or Druze um, or Christian if you are out to set up a Shia theocracy. And so a couple of years ago, when they updated their founding documents, they took that out. That doesn't mean that they don't ultimately want to do that someday, but it means that they're very much realists. Um, and I think they're going to want to leverage as much muscle as they can without completely overturning the system, unless they have to. You'll recall that in March 2008, Hezbollah had a real big break with the government of Lebanon over multiple issues, uh, including Hezbollah's ability to maintain its own intelligence network at the Beirut International Airport and Hezbollah's ability to continue running its own fiber-optic communication lines outside the control of the Lebanese government, and that led Hezbollah to take over downtown Beirut by force of arms, turning some of its weapons against fellow Lebanese for a short period of time. When the government of New Zealand declared 
part of Hezbollah, a terrorist organization, not all of it, but part of it, they cited this as an act of terrorism, an act of terrorism against their fellow Lebanese. So I think there's always a concern by the other parties of not pushing Hezbollah too far. And from Hezbollah's perspective, it also doesn't want to, uh, you know, rock the apple cart on the one hand. On the other hand, it really wants to leverage its political strength towards its uh, uh, objectives of resistance, mukawama. Um, Islamic resistance against Israel uh, in support of its allies, including Syria and Iran and the Shia militias, especially from Iraq. And I think one of the things we're going to be dealing with over the next decades is, is not just you know the ongoing issue of Sunni extremism, whether it's al-Qaeda or Islamic State or whatever these groups next morph into, but now really also the kind of well-formed, established Shia Islamist groups that are effectively uh, a foreign legion uh, beholden to Iran, uh, able to do things, whether it's in Yemen or Iraq or Syria, potentially beyond. You have about as many foreign fighters on the Shia side of the spectrum in Syria as you do on the, on the Sunni side, though, when we all in law enforcement and intelligence talk about the foreign terrorist fighter phenomenon, we're all talking about the Sunnis because that's what presents the primary threat to the West. You mentioned a moment ago that there are some countries that make a division between um, Hezbollah's terror arm, terror wing of Hezbollah, they might call it, and their political branch. Um, Thanks in part to AJC's steady advocacy on this issue, countries like the US, France, Canada, the Netherlands, Israel, Japan, the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council, and the Arab League um, all consider Hezbollah as a whole a terrorist organization. But the European Union still makes this artificial distinction between Hezbollah, the terror group, and Hezbollah, the political party, a distinction that, as far as I understand, even Hezbollah rejects. Um, Are we more or less likely now to see the EU crack down on Hezbollah? Yeah, that's that's a hard nut to crack. Um, as you know, my last book was on Hezbollah's international uh, terrorist operations and financing and arms procurement. And before and certainly after the book came out, I've been spending a lot of time in Europe on this issue, um, very, very frequently in very close partnership with the AJC offices in Europe, in particular uh, those in Brussels and Germany and in France where they are constantly working on this issue. And I've had many, many meetings with senior intelligence and policy officials in Europe, uh, me and uh, AJC officials uh, over the years. Uh, We've been great partners on this issue. Um, The Europeans want to see Hezbollah as something that has different parts, even if when you get some of these officials alone at the end of the day over beer off the record, they'll, they'll admit to you that In reality, there is no such thing, in part, as you said, because Hezbollah leaders themselves laugh at this. They're very, very open about the fact that this is one organization, not different entities. Um, The structure of Hezbollah includes the fact that the Jihad Council, as they call it, reports up the chain to Hezbollah leadership. Of course, um, there there is an element of uh, need to know within any organization that engages in overt and covert activity. It's not like every senior Hezbollah official that's involved in the overt activities is going to be knowledgeable of what they're doing in a terrorist um, uh, way or a uh, criminal activity 
uh, or arms procurement, um, but they are deeply involved in all those types of activity. Uh, and I do think this gives us ammunition to go back to uh, the Europeans on this issue. I'm going to be in Brussels again on this next week, um, not only because uh, of what Hezbollah um, is doing in Syria, though that is a huge uh, piece of leverage, but also what it's doing in Iraq, what it's doing in Yemen. According to U.S. officials, some of the rockets that Houthi rebels in Yemen have fired at um, at Saudi population centers, including the capital, just this week. Uh, some of those were actually fired by Hezbollah, not just Hezbollah training the Houthis how to do it and then letting them do what they want to do, but Hezbollah actually doing this themselves, Hezbollah helping the Houthi rebels in Yemen build up domestic missile production capabilities of their own, as they are trying to do with the Iranians in Syria and in Lebanon. Um, I think also the Trump administration is trying to use leverage, has tried to use leverage of the Iran deal to get the Europeans to do more on Hezbollah. And in that sense, I think that it's going to take a little more time. Had the Trump administration not withdrawn from the Iran deal, I think the Europeans might have been more willing to say, okay, this is a a carrot we'll give you. We'll take a harder line on Hezbollah. Now that we've withdrawn, we don't have that leverage right now. But in a matter of months or weeks, uh, we will be having some very difficult but some very serious negotiations with the Europeans in particular on all things Iran, not just the nuclear file, but the support for terrorism and the ballistic missile file as well. And you can be sure that this will come up with the Europeans again. Let's turn now to Syria. Iran, as you mentioned, has been building up military infrastructure in Syria for some time now. According to news reports this morning, much of that was wiped away last night in a series of Israeli strikes. You mentioned that those were precipitated by Iranian rocket attacks on northern Israel yesterday. But can you walk us through what happened last night? Well, before we even get to last night, I think it's important for people to understand that this is going back a little bit now. Not only has Iran been active in Syria in support of the Assad regime, It says it's there to defeat terrorists, the Islamic State and al-Qaeda. It's basically done none of that and is only fighting true rebels who are not Islamist and trying to defend the Assad regime. And from Israel's perspective, it wasn't going to get involved in that. Israel was only getting involved when it saw Iran providing strategic weaponry like long-distance rockets to Hezbollah or when Iran was itself trying to set up infrastructure to carry out rocket attacks or terrorist attacks against Israel. Things really took um, a uh, a turn for the worse in February when uh, Israel intercepted a drone, an Iranian drone that Iran had flown over Israel. According to some accounts, the drone was armed. Even if it hadn't been armed, this was a very, very serious escalation. Iran was itself now doing things directly against Israel as a frontline state by virtue of having uh, close allies on the ground in Iraq and in Syria, effectively building what we describe as a land bridge uh, all the way from Tehran through Beirut to the Israeli border. Uh, Israel uh, retaliated by striking the base that's called T4 in Syria, where much of the Iranian military infrastructure is based and where that drone had been operated from. 
and that led to uh, about two months later in April, um, Iran carrying out um, some more strikes and the IDF carrying out more retaliations in an effort to prevent Iran from being able to build up this infrastructure and message to them that they would not tolerate Iran attacking Israel directly from Syria. Uh, so what we had now uh, is really following on uh, earlier this week, over the night of May 8th, 9th, the Israel Air Force hit uh, a, a launcher truck with uh, with rockets, an Iranian uh, weaponry system, uh, and uh, tried to not only prevent that from being used, but kind of to message to Iran's Quds Force, to the head, Qasem Soleimani himself, that this won't be tolerated. Uh, several Iranian officials, senior generals were killed, and uh, Iran made clear it was going to attack. That, that brings us to today. So last night, about 30 to 40 Iranian rockets of different types uh, were fired at Israel. Uh, it's still early early days, uh, but it appears from what we can determine in the open source that a very few of those even crossed the border into the Israeli-controlled Golan at all and that those were intercepted by Iron Dome or fell in places where it didn't matter that they fell, that most of these rockets actually fell on Syrian soil, on the Syrian side of the Golan. Uh, but the Israeli Air Force uh, responded, uh, taking uh, attacking uh, a bunch of logistics and intelligence facilities in Syria used by the Iranians in an effort to really kind of strike hard at Iran's uh, military intelligence rocket infrastructure in Syria. Now, the Israeli reports, the early reporting uh, from Israel and the United States is that um, they were hit very, very hard, uh, and a lot of that uh, material was taken out. We'll have to wait and see these bomb damage assessments. BDAs sometimes take a little bit of time uh, and will involve some satellite oversight, etc. And... uh, but this is very significant. And finally, the last significant piece here is that though this was primarily something between Israel and Iran, it obviously involved Syria. It happened from Syria. Syria is allowing its territory to be used this way. And Syria launched about 70 uh, anti-aircraft missiles, uh, none of which are believed to have hit any targets, um, though the Syrians are maintaining that they shot down most of the Israeli missiles. That appears not to be correct. Either way, the fact that the Syrians are launching air defense missiles in support of an Iranian offensive strike at Israel demonstrates the closeness of this Syrian regime, Iranian regime, Lebanese Hezbollah, and uh, Shia militant, especially Iraqi Shia uh, militia uh, alliance. And the fact that this is literally on Israel's doorstep is, is a big concern. And so it shouldn't surprise that the Israeli strategic assessment from much earlier this year was that the northern border was going to be the primary uh, area needing of attention, even as uh, there are issues going on along the border on the south of the Gaza Strip, especially next week when the uh, U.S. Embassy is opened. Uh, Israel can defend itself on its northern and southern borders at the same time, but the more strategic threat, without question, is to the north. Matt, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. I'm looking forward to seeing you in exactly one month in Jerusalem at the AJC Global Forum. I'm really looking forward to the Global Forum. I hope uh, a lot of people will be there. Uh, it's going to be it's going to be really something else, and it's a pleasure to be on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. All right, take care. Now it's time for our closing segment, 
Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Apologies. Good for the Jews? The Jewish New Year is perhaps famous as the season of apologies. At that time, our tradition encourages us to do cheshbon hanefesh, to take an accounting of our souls. Leave it to us Jews to bring accounting into such a solemn existential duty. But sincere, meaningful apologies can also come at any time. Many of us were reminded of that this week by Kwai James, a black man from Yonkers, New York. Kwai had posted a video to social media mocking a young Hasidic boy for his haircut as the boy cried in front of him. The video went viral and Kwai was rightly slammed for the cruel act. But in the end, no one was harder on Kwai than himself. He posted a second video this week, a heartfelt apology. In the two-minute clip, Kwai said that he had been an immature bully and expressed deep contrition for his actions. He extended his apology not just to the boy, but to all Jews, because he recognized how offensive he had been. If more people gave more thought to what they posted on social media and to how their words could affect others, that would be good for society as a whole. And it would certainly be good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org Passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at Passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Alex Zeldin. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.